Hey, Common Scientists, it's Lauren coming to you on Common Science Cast. We've also got Aiden here and Dre here, other co-founders. And this week we're coming to you with the topic of humanness and what it means to be human. Reminder, we are not experts. We are common scientists, keyword common. You probably heard me hear that say, or you probably heard me say that before. But this week we're going to dive into a bit more on what makes us human, what's the science behind why we think that we're human, and what does that all mean? Uh, and so I'm going to kick it to Aiden to start off with a bit of background on humanness and the development or evolution of humans. Yeah, thank you, Lauren, for the, the introduction. And I will segue a bit into the development of humans, but to start most broadly, humans or homo sapiens, uh, where homo is the genus name and sapiens would be the species name, are the most abundant and widespread species of primates characterized by bipedality and large complex brains, uh, which I'm sure if you're listening, listening to this podcast, you're well familiar with, with those very human traits. Uh, the earliest documented representatives of the genus Homo is Homo habilis, which evolved around 2.8 million years ago from uh, another uh, primate. But yeah, so just again, for those of you with uh, less familiarity with evolution and evolutionary terms, like a genus is kind of like, uh, like the cousins, uh, a set of cousins of species, right? So species are, uh, that are more closely related are grouped into these things called genuses. Um, and so Homo is, is the genus of humans, and, and the first one of those was around 2.8 million years ago. Uh, and then Homo sapiens specifically emerged around 300,000 years ago, so a while ago, from Homo erectus. Uh, and, and Homo erectus remained in Africa, but Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa. Um, and that migration took place in at least two waves. Um, one thing to also keep in mind when it comes to evolution is it can be kind of a me messy and branching process. And so uh, human evolution was not this simple linear uh, progression, but involved a lot of interbreeding be between related species and a lot of just kind of messiness because uh, life can be messy. Um, but yeah, so, and as I mentioned earlier, earlier on, it was characterized by a number of uh, morphological and developmental and behavioral changes uh, among the most significant ad ad adaptations are bipedalism or walking on two feet, increased brain size, and decreased sexual dimorphism, which sounds like a fancy term, but it means that there's less of a physical and behavioral difference between men and women, or males and females, sorry, to be more precise. But yeah, so that's kind of a basic overview of the timeline. Obviously, we can talk more into why some of the different hypotheses about why these traits emerged but yeah just thought I'd, I'd lay that out there for our listeners yeah thanks for the background Aiden I just want to make one kind of quick related and unrelated comment so if you've heard our cast before you may know that I identify as a Christian and I just want to overtly say I am a Christian and I believe in evolution and I think that that's something that many uh, Christians kind of gloss over or are uncomfortable with. It's not something I feel uncomfortable with. It's something I feel very sound in. And I just want to say that <laughs> just because I don't, I don't know, depending on where you fall or what camp, a lot of people believe those things are incompatible and I don't. So thanks Aiden for the overview though. Yeah. I'd also like to, so again, a little bit on, I mean, just to continue your note, Lauren. So for our listeners, I would identify as agnostic and that means i'm not like certain whether or not there is a, a higher power or god uh and i would say one of the fallacies of modern science is kind of this like artificial separation between science and religion uh so i just like to highlight that and that there's a lot to learn from both uh environments no matter where on the spectrum of belief you might lie 
Uh, so I just wanted to, yeah, just iterate on your point too, cool. Lauren. Yeah. So humans, we've been around a while, couple, what what was it, a couple hundred thousand or a couple million years? I, two very different skills, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> just asking. Just law. <laughs> just like 300,000 years. Okay, 300,000. Uh, so, which, so. which sounds like a lot of years, but in the grand scale of evolution, not that many. We're one of the younger species out there. Yeah. Yeah, which is an, a fascinating thing to think of when we often are talking about saving our species or saving our planet as like, we are pretty new to this universe, to this world. Dre, where did some of your initial research bring you in humanness and the homo sapiens that we have evolved in today? Yeah, <clears throat> sticking with some of the more physical as opposed to philosophical ideas, um well i think like genetic similarities are always funny you kind of hear them bounce around in school when you're kind of young like oh like you're this similar to a banana and some numbers i found like obviously 96 percent similar to chimps which is you know a lot of similarities with them 90 percent similarity to cats 80 to 85 percent with cows 60 percent with flies and 60 percent bananas <laughs> so <laughs> yes you are what you eat at least 60% of it. Um, so that, that's just kind of, you know, those are kind of fun. But it's just really interesting how um, the study of genetics really changed how we view ourselves. Because obviously before genetics, if you looked at, or even like microbiology, if you looked at a banana, you would not think you are, have any similarities with a banana. And so just talking about like branching evolution, all that in the history of not just ourselves, but Earth and life. Um, it, it just really, <clears throat> really fascinates me and it really brings a lot of science and truth in my mind to some of these more ethereal kind of airy ideas of like interconnectedness of the universe and stuff like that. So um, just I really enjoy reading and studying and research and stuff like um, out of that nature, just seeing how we are connected and how we are created, molded and just a part of this earth. And I think that's really cool as well as um like specifically i like to look at or i looked at things that like people throughout history thought made us different so examples like altruism i had heard growing up as a kid um people were like oh like humans are the only ones who are who will sacrifice themselves and it's not but we obviously know that's not true like we've all seen dogs do it and monkeys like a lot of animals uh show altruism show sacrificing themselves for another one of their species and sometimes even a completely different species um so i don't know there's things like that like reason language a lot of different ideas that people have tried to they try to find this trait that makes us human right trying to define humanness what makes us so different and set apart how did we get here sometimes those ideas or those intentions are a little bit um, less pure, I think. Sometimes it's it is really pure, and it's like, oh, like what does like how did we get here? And trying to figure out who we are, but sometimes it's more of like, how can we prove that we're better than how other species? How can we justify yeah, the I, massive amount of destruction that exactly, we're doing? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, one of the interesting things, and I think most like science in general agrees, and I agree, is that we are the only species that truly cries from like emotional you know, whatever, heartbreak, all that stuff. So that one's pretty cool. I'm like, huh, well, we're just out here crying. <laughs> like that, that, that's human. That's uniquely human. That's really cool. Yeah, I think language also is something that fascinates me and the idea that we communicate differently than other species. I, I wish, though, that we had sufficient technology to figure out if that's actually true because we mm -hmm. see other species who may or may not model extremely intelligent communication that's beyond what we can understand. And it could just be just interpretation of sounds that's very basic and very biologically um, founded. But, or they could be having whole huge complex conversations and they're pissed at us for like, I don't know, dirtying the ocean and, or whatever else. I'm thinking of some of the species of like very intelligent sonic communicators. Mm -hmm. But that idea yeah one that comes to mind is me. whale song mm -hmm. yeah if you ever heard it 
Oh, whale song. Whale song. Yeah. That's, that's my Japanese. Speaking of language, oh. you know, I've, been studying, I've been studying Japanese. And you said a whale. Uh, they said a whale song. And like that's like an honorific that they use in Japan. I was like, what are we, we just yeah. like talking like giving respect, Mr. Whale? I was like, what is this guy talking about? My bad. Okay, whale song. Go yeah. keep going, Aiden. No, I was just saying, yeah. I mean, there's incredible examples of, of in the intelligence of animals as well as the a lot of the similarities uh between animals and us so i think and there's been a lot of like a lot of striving for the uniqueness of humans humans and i'm wondering if it's more like a lot of people search for the one trait that makes us distinct my thought is that it's probably more just the combination of traits that make us distinct distinct right uh like it is the bipedalism it is the complex brain it is the ability to uh communicate in language like all of these acting together uh yeah uh one yeah i mean one though that i think i mean obviously like in my eyes plays a uh a huge role is the increased size in a brain and to keep with the physical change uh, the, there's the hypothesis that it came with our, our mastering of fire and our ability to cook food and make it easier to digest and so our bodies needed to dedicate less energy to digesting and could dedicate more energy to creating these complex brains capable of, of language and uh, yeah all the rest but yeah i just thought i'd I'd highlight that as well yeah we were joking about it just before the cast uh so i'll share with all of you guys as well i i generally start my searches with a wikipedia read down i'm like okay what does wiki have to say and we'll go from there and i read the whole wiki page on humans and it's written as if like another species wrote it or someone who is not human. And so I got to just read this to you guys. It's related to what Aiden was just saying. Humans are omnivorous, capable of consuming a wide variety of plant and animal material and have used fire to prepare and cook food since the time of H. erectus. They can survive for up to eight weeks without food and three or four days without water. And like reading about it, as a human and hearing they was wild. We were just laughing about that before the cast. I thought I'd share with you guys as well. That's wild. Yeah, that is pretty funny. It definitely gave it a little bit of like a self-distancing effect. Like, who is... Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when it comes to the your ideas, or like, well, this is, I guess, a general theories about like how fire and cooked food mm-hmm. and energy distribution really helped us. I think that's a really cool idea. And this is maybe like a little bit of a tangent but i always felt that way too about like great minds throughout history is like a lot of times they come from like these really well-off families because when you have your basic needs met you can have time to like philosophize and think about these area these like more ethereal ideas and i think that's kind of too like what happened with humans like how we evolved it's like well we don't have to spend 50% of our energy digesting. We don't need to chew on raw meat for four hours a day. We don't need to do all this. And then obviously agriculture and all that comes into play too. Now we don't need to hunt as much. We got some time to think about some things, yeah. right? And start contemplating and yeah. develop and, oh, well, you know, not that we are doing it intentionally, but develop some of these more human traits mm-hmm. that have emerged. Speaking of emerge, mm-hmm. I think too, that's kind of what you're getting to too, is that it's not one thing, but it's like, it's an emergent property. Humanness is an emergent thing um, mm-hmm. where it's just like, you're bigger than the sum of your parts or the sum is bigger than the parts or whatever it is, you know? What I right. think is fascinating and the otherness of that Wikipedia writing made me think of is if a different intelligent species happened upon earth, you know, years from now or something and looked upon our society what I find fascinating as a mammal, as an animal, as a human, is how much value we place on material objects and things. And I think that's also quite unique to hu- the human species. Uh, maybe birds compare nest sizes or something, but I think the amount of value we place on stuff seems to be high. Yeah, I, th- I would think to make that your point a little more 
nuance because I think, yeah, birds have a nice nest and, and that might attract a mate or, uh, yeah, like I think there is some like that. I can't think of more examples, but I was just going to say like, there's, there is the appreciation of, of the things, but there's also the abstract representation that the thing might have. Uh, like we, with our sim, our ability to, uh, like find meaning in, Mm -hmm. in these things and assign meaning and assign meaning to these things, which Uh, is why I'm just, I mean, I'm just imagining some like sentient being like, look at them. They all look at these things that tick on their walls and their whatever and like the like they are i mean what people might think they are governed by these things that tick i mean a clock right like because we're governed by time and time increments and we're paid in time and it's all this shit that we've invented (laughs) that like could or could not exist or that they traded i mean they traded this paper that seemed to be i mean who knows yeah thinking about paper and time uh one so to highlight one point in human history as a, as also in my eyes, uh, uh, quite a distinguishing moment in terms of like, yeah, as Dre said, creating this more humanness uh, is our ability to kind of overcome time through, through stories and mm. especially the, the printing press and being able to kind of overcome the boundaries of time and share stories throughout time. Like I think, I mean, it's so bonkers that I can, I'm reading a book by Cicero who like was a Roman statesman thousands of years ago, but you think of other species and the information that they're dealing with is biological. So the DNA, right, which gets passed down through generations. And then also they might have a, a parent like a mother bear teaching them how to find food and things like that but it's like constrained to the one generation whereas writing and other mediums have kind of helped us transcend time somewhat yeah i'm really glad you brought that up um that is a really really cool one it's one that i've kind of pondered and kind of worked through and i think one of my problems with or something that I run into when I think about something that's uniquely human or what makes humanness is like, I think for most things, it's not that it's unique to us. It's just like humans are just more so, right? It's not that animals don't have simpler versions of it. It's just ours are just way more advanced because largely because of like bipedality, thumbs, and a bigger brain. Um, But even with planning, because sometimes I'm like, well, when, what? And a bigger ego. Okay. <laughs> and a bigger <laughs> Sorry, ego. Just... Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And because uh, I even think about when I think, so I, I, I've thought about that too. Like, so animals, like they don't do a lot of planning, it seems. But then I'm like, well, what about like when my dog buries a bone or squirrels right. bury acorns? Yeah. And it's like so that you, because then people write it off to like just being pure well, instinct. Well, there is, yeah, and there's another example too of uh, a raven, one of the smarter birds, uh, like if if there's water in a in a cup or in, oh, yeah, in yeah, some yeah. vessel they'll drink it down to a level and then they'll go get a stone drop it yep. in and raise the water level just water like displacement that. just <laughs> just, <laughs> just yeah. low-key modeling Bernoulli <laughs> right. the world for any physicist out there right yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild um so i think in a lot of ways we're just a little bit more so like they have these a lot of animals have these traits ours are just slightly more advanced and who knows what would happen in another couple million years with some of these animals like one time i asked i was in japan talking with a couple of friends and we were just having one of these late night bro conversations where we we're just talking about everything about life and i was like what, what do you think if humans vanished what do you think would be like the next intelligent species and we talked about like would it be dolphins would it be um octopus like what, what might it be and that that's just, that really fascinates me. Like, who would evolve? Like, who would yeah. make fire or something like that and learn to and get the energy and metabolism necessary to b- build a bigger front, prefrontal cortex and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, and I don't know. That really fascinated me. I was yeah. Like, huh. Yeah, I mean, you think about primates, it, it makes sense in a lot of ways why they would be able to uh, figure out fire at uh, like in terms of their the 
uh, dexterity of their hands and being able to manipulate yeah stones and and wood but no yeah. question i know they had that there's that orangutan or maybe it's a group of them that have started spear fishing because they've seen humans do it i wonder has no animal tried to create fire like watching a human yeah or, i don't know well, it wouldn't be an animal it would be a plant obviously mm-hmm. yeah but, I don't know. I've not. Uh, I've not. It's nothing that I've come across. Yeah. But. I'm sure, though, if it had happened, we would have heard about yeah, it. Yeah, we'd be like, oh, hold up. It's going to stop that. One thing that I want to back up on and comment a bit more on the biology of is this idea of species and human, and we are all animals. So, for those of you who don't have biology training, Uh, There's actually several different categories of classification of beings that are alive. Um, And I think there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Does that sound right, Aiden? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Eight different classifications. So um, when we are talking about life, um, and that is defined in biology in a certain way, uh, there are major huge categories the things that might separate like viruses and bacteria um, and eukarya from prokaryotes right and so humans are prokaryotes and or eukaryotes eukaryotes. sorry yeah Yeah, i was like that was wrong um yeah and so humans are eukaryotes which is like this huge huge classification up at the very very top of the pyramid and then it goes further down and further down in these other classes. So that's our domain. Then it goes to our kingdom, our phylum, our class, our order, our family, our genus, our species. You don't need to remember those words. Most college students are given like a, um, a mnemonic for that. Something about King Philip coming something. But needless to say, so there are a lot, a lot of larger categories that classify living, living things. And so when we talk about the difference between humans and other mammals, we are already very filtered. We're already quite, uh, yeah, quite specific to things that are already way more related to us than all these other things that are classified in different ways. So I just wanted to comment on that because we've thrown around the word species and genus, and I think it's important in the context of biology to then have an understanding that we've already then gone through like eight categories to be talking about similarity on an already very similar level. So hopefully that wasn't too meta. You know, the words in biology can be kind of a alphabet soup, but (laughs) just so that you know, we're already talking on a quite similar level at the level of a genus and a species. Yeah, and I want to just point out for our listeners who are wanting to learn more about evolution, there are two books that I would recommend. One is The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. He's, uh, I mean, he's just a quite a good uh, science, popular science writer, and he talks about the, the blind process that is evolution and how uh, some of these just uh, very, very minute changes can add up to all of the all of the forms that are around us. And then the other one is Endless Forms Most Beautiful. Uh, And that's a book by Sean B. Carroll. And that one's fascinating because it's about evolutionary developmental biology specifically, which I think is super, super cool. Basically, the premise of that is it's looking at evolution uh, through an animal or whatever species you want to talk about their development. And so uh, if you look up, if you Google an image of, of a chicken embryo and a human embryo or any embryo really, there's a lot of commonalities across these different species. And as Dre said, we're, we're very genetically similar to these different species. And uh, what comes through in both of those books is that a lot of it is down to the timing of, of the uh, the turning on or off of these different genes and, and how those all add up into these just, I mean, gorgeous uh, diversity that we have around us. But 
yeah, I just wanted to shout out those two books. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. And just so that you guys know, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the word embryo, that is the term gifted to an unborn being. And every, nearly every species, for sure every mammal, yeah. uh, starts in the stage of an embryo and then develops much like we do in pregnancy and other species do as well. So mm-hmm. just throwing that out there. That's fascinating too, if you're speaking of embryos, because that's where you can see a lot of similarities with uh, um, that we have with other animals. Because don't do humans have a tail horn effort? It looks a lot like a tail, yeah. So where our spinal cord develops out of, if you look at images, I don't know that scientists in embryology would call it a tail. I'm sure there's a different term, but it we look kind of like a tadpole okay. uh, in our first gotcha. couple of of a couple of weeks and months of development once we've kind of evolved out of a just massing clump of vibrating cells. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. like the way you put that. Very cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm not going to speak on it too much. I just know because I didn't do research about that specifically for this, but I've heard in the past that, yeah, like you can see so many of these kind of, um, what do you call it? What's the word for you? Like an appendix is what kind of? Like vestigial, like mm-hmm. all these vestigial traits that yeah. we have in our as we branched out through evolution, and then we look at other mammals and other animals, you can see like a lot of similarities. Like animals that seem to have like fingers or wings or this, but then they grow, like they mm-hmm. are born and they don't have any of that stuff. Oh yeah, really cool. Yeah, if you yeah if you look at a lot of so in the wings of animals, uh, they have what look like fingers, right? The the bone structures look a lot like fingers, and so that's uh, I mean, just kind of the suggestion in the embryonic that, stage prior to birth. Yeah, I'm just well, in an adult, you'll see you'll see the elongated. bone structure. Yeah, yeah, they're elongated, but you can see that if you look <clears throat> at an image of like a bird wings bone structure in your own hand, you can see the similarities. Yeah, there. You're right, and specifically with bats because they're mammals, so mm-hmm. that's yeah, how you can see bats, like, yeah. they're pretty much just big old hands <laughs> with webs like this. Yeah. yeah, it is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Man, so we we danced danced in some some embryology space <laughs> and a little bit of evolutionary bi- evolutionary biology. Uh, what about the I I mean our otherness? And we've commented some on that. Biologically, what do you guys think about our otherness to other species? I mean, uh, what do you mean by that question? Like, what do you interpret biologically to be most distinguishing about us, maybe besides a prefrontal mm. or a more developed frontal cortex? Like the most, yeah, it's hard to untie, I guess, like the biological from, uh, I think for me, like I said, I think it is all of these characteristics that added right. up to create like an emergence of humanness. But I do think that uh, for me, I think, well, there's two that I think I could, I'd, I would say are the most distinguishing. It's our uh, our language and so our, and our resultant capacity to coordinate at such a large scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our ability to use and develop tools uh, would be the other one that I would say, uh, yeah, that like is quite distinguishing and could give kind of this illusion almost of a of an otherness from from animals. What yeah. about what about you, Dre? I think I'm right there with you, and it's like it's so hard to really talk about otherness without talking about the brain, of course. Sure. But because that's I think that's really what separates us from chimps. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you want to talk about us and other primates, advanced primates, bonobos and all that type of stuff. Then it's like, yeah, I think there's like bipedalism for sure. Yeah. Being able to have your, two of your limbs free. Yeah. Very valuable. Um, Opposable thumbs, being able to manipulate your environment with all these flexible digits. Very, very valuable. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, can't make, you know, like a dog is not really going to make fire, right? How's he going to rub the sticks together? Mm -hmm. So I think those two things for sure. Mm -hmm. How about you, Lauren? Uh, uh, 
it's okay if, if we caught it all but no no <laughs> I, I think I you did. did you I think you mostly did mostly my mind did, was yeah. in the gutter with a just childish thought about rubbing sticks together and dogs my bad flint I don't want anybody to call me that <laughs> <laughs> it's not sticks that's for cartoons laughing <laughs> in my head um no, I think you guys touched on it well. I also wanted to bring bring it back to a bit of an overview of the biological before we move into some of the psychological and uh, philosophical. And I think you guys mm-hmm. you guys summed summed it up well. Yeah, I think though with physics, I think like I I don't think that these are really important qualities, or they are, but um, not that they were necessary through evolution. But I think like laughing and crying. The fact that it seems we're the only species to do that, that's like, whoa. Yeah. That's really, really interesting to me. Yeah, I wonder how much that's tied to, yeah, I think, I mean, it's just our, so the ability to, I mean, beyond, coupled with language in a lot of ways, is is our ability to empathize with others. And, uh, I mean, that all kind of wraps into this idea of teamwork and, and sociality, because we are super social creatures. Yeah. Quick, quick question. Um, do you guys think, so I, I posited, posited this to M uh, a couple weeks ago. So dogs, they have this communication, right? We see it every day with the, the growling and the butt smelling and this and that and the posturing, all that yeah. type of stuff. And then we have our forms of communication, which are hugely nonverbal, but we usually think of it as being verbal. So with our verbal communication and dogs communication, which one do you think leaves more room for misinterpretation or miscommunication? Mm. Oh, human communication, 100%. That's my, my, gut, my gut feeling. I can give some reasoning. I don't know, Aiden, if you want to answer first. Otherwise, I'm happy to expand. I would, say, I would say human as well. And I also could give some reasoning, but if, Lauren, you want to yeah. give your reasoning first. I will start with the major assumption that dogs or any living thing that is not us is less complex emotionally which again i said assumption we don't really know but i think because of that and assuming that that is correct uh there would be a certain i mean amount of physical displays of traits I don't know if I would call them thoughts or feelings but things that dogs do communicate to one another that are limited right by what they can do with their bodies and are not tied to words that have just very different understandings across cultures so I think in that way it would seem that dogs would be less likely to fail in communication they would be more set up for success in knowing what they were trying to get across to one another. And then on the human side of things, I think because of language and because of all of the cultural uh, understanding that's baked into how we communicate, it's so easy to not understand what people are saying or asking or are trying to communicate the story that they're telling. And you'll even see it on our podcast, right? One of us will ask a question and the other two don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. One of us will make a point and the other two are like, what, what the heck? I mean, and we have quite similar experiences, at least living in Minnesota. I mean, we bring vast difference to the table, but we speak the same language. We grew up here. I mean, those sorts of things. And we still don't understand each other often or have the balls to ask a lot of the time. So those are my thoughts. Eh? And then before you go, Aiden, I yeah. just want to kind of emphasize, and I, I agree, that's a great point. Thank you for laying that out there. Um, I just want to emphasize why the question came to mind. The reason why I posited the question was because when I was watching Lou interact with other dogs, there's so many times where they get set off and they start like barking and growling and like kind of attacking each other. And I was just like, I feel like if they just sat down and were just like, hey, man, like, what's up? Like, how are you today? Like, so many of those aggressive situations would not happen. Or if it's just like, hey, man, I'm on my leash. My owner's been, like, pulling me a lot today. I'm kind of grumpy, you know? But so I'm, like, so I'm just kind of wondering when I see what they're doing. I'm like, what did they smell on that other dog's dick that made you start growling? Like, what was that? <laughs> I have to say, though, we're not that different. Like, you, you would say, like you said, oh, if they would just say, hey, man, whatever, whatever, insert. But most people don't say, like, hey man why are you parked in my parking spot 
You know, most most men are like, I'm gonna fucking key that guy's car. Peace, <laughs> POS. Like, I mean, we don't usually start our conversations with like, hey man, like that kind of offended me. Could you explain mm. that a little bit? You know, we're usually like, yeah. f you, and freaking well, out. I don't know. I would I would argue somewhat against that because I think I think that like one, I mean distinguishing trait for humans is our obviously our big brain but also like the way it's structured and so for my from my basic neuroscience understanding uh we have the brain stem which is like this uh the smallest of the structures at the base and core of the brain and then over that and lauren might need to help me out What's the cort? Is it just what's the cortex right above? So we have our hind brain. If you make a fist, brain, yeah. that's like our brain and spinal cord. Our hind brain. Then we got our mid brain that kind of wraps around that, and that's like the next most basic mid-brain. functions. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that might help monitor like hunger, and that also and helps. And then we have our prefrontal cortex. And then that's called our forebrain, which our includes forebrain, our which prefrontal includes cortex. The, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the explanation I have heard is that this hindbrain is kind of our just basic like pulse uh and that's like the most fundamental like a living thing needs these to just live uh like the needs these uh these functions to live like those and these functions might be uh just yeah having your blood your heart pump your um whatever else uh your breathing uh, and then you would have your midbrain, which is like eat, fight, all of the kind of uh, slightly more complex behaviors and actions that we can take that are governed by this. Uh, and then what distinguishes us, and like most animals share that kind of si- like a similar stru- type of structure in terms of their having their uh, hindbrain and then their midbrain. But then humans have this like master uh, cortex on top, and you called that the the forebrain, brain, mm-hmm. right? And that uh, is how we conduct more of our advanced planning, our language, and, and from my again the explanation I had come across is that that operates to kind of suppress some of the instinctual responses. So, like, while we might have the gut reaction to say F you, like, if you have, if you've been properly socialized, you, you might have that, you, you might have that gut reaction, but then, uh, but then you're the little man inside your head might say, you know, I, I, I should probably not say that, or I should probably, like, whatever it might be. And that's like how we have the, the laws that we have and, and those sorts of, uh, like, like, way, manners with which we can coexist without uh yeah i mean just causing violence all the time but yeah that was a super long-winded i liked it though explanation. And it got me yeah that got me thinking a little bit too and even I, I think a lot of people would argue too that the forebrain is really just like a fluffy compl- like complexing of things whereas you really are just acting with the midbrain and hindbrain but the forebrain is just making up all these reasons why you're doing something and kind of making it a more complicated process for example the dog if he's well socialized or well trained he's not going to do that aggressive behavior because his high his little animal brain his little pri- uh, dog brain canine brain is going to say my owner has punished me before for doing this and has taught me not to do this I'm not going to do this, right? He's mm-hmm. obviously not thinking those words, but that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. So for us, we can make it more complex and say, you know what? The moral thing is to perpetuate human. You know, we can right. do all that with our forebrain. But at the end of the day, it's really that at a young age, we were punished or we're, we're avoiding the possibility of coming into danger by acting out in an aggressive way or in like a immoral way. I think that's, I think... So I think the punishment thing is a big component of it, but I would say it's also very, again, and I would say this is another characteristic that contributes to or, or defines humanness is like the sociocultural uh, like values that have been passed down. So when we think about uh, what 
uh, you just talked about, about morals, right? Like our morals are, Western morals are quite derived from like Christian theology. And so like the, the, the way with which we navigate the world and make our choices uh, are quite rooted in the solutions that a lot of people before us came to in terms of either traditions or um, like their writings Uh, and that's yeah again my so I I think like there's definitely the punishment factor but there's also probably I mean just like the more uniquely human thing all Um, right looks like we got another podcast argument yeah we might have a (laughs) (laughs) you need to mediate (laughs) I'm just laughing at you too you're getting into this nature versus nurture conversation (laughs) Jay's over here like, no, it's operant conditioning, clearly. Like, we see punishments <laughs> or we see rewards, and then our, then we act, and the Nathan's over here like, oh, but it's more convoluted than that. Or, <laughs> <laughs> our right, brains. I, I didn't know what my question was going to go there, but You're Lauren, good. spearhead us into the more philosophical side of humanness. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've, we've covered a bit on all sorts of things regarding biology and evolution and now schools of thought about what... <laughs> what may or may not make us more or less human. Uh, But one of the things that I find extremely fascinating in this conversation is the assigned value that we have created within society of humanness. And when I say that, we have decided that some things are more or less human. Let me give you an example. If you violate the Constitution... Um, and this may not be true now, but it was just five or six years ago. If you violated the Constitution, you could be sent to a place where you were no longer protected. The U.S. Constitution? Yeah. Okay. Where you were no longer protected by your basic rights because you were no longer like a United States citizen. And some people might even say you were less human. And that could be because you committed a terrorist act or something. And thereby, we allow society to torture you or to treat you differently we also treat incarcerated peoples differently because they haven't abided by some things and rules that we've decided are more or less correct and i would maybe argue more or less human now my question for you guys is like in a moral sense do we have a definition of humanness do you guys think you could come up with a definition of humanness and if so like, is that the goal? Is the goal to be more human? Or are we trying to escape our humanness? Some big questions that Lauren is posing. Uh, I think, so, yeah, it's funny. The, the example that I was thinking about when you're talking about defining this delineation and defining and associating humanness with goodness was... Uh, I, I can't rem- recall uh, a precise like quote, but just thinking about how, yeah, it definitely is an, an insult almost to say somebody is acting like an animal, like, oh, he's so impolite, he's acting like an animal, or he cannot control how much he eats, he's acting like an animal, or whatever it is. Like that. Oh, and historically those savages to i mean native indian people i mean oh for sure words that yeah. we use uh so you say so sorry could you repeat the question because i got just off on a tangent <laughs> no you're good i think the question question one is is there a moral definition of humanness Is there a moral definition of humanness? And if so, what, like, what do we think that might be? Or are there good humans and bad humans? I don't know. Um, I don't think there are good humans and bad humans. Do you think, think humans are, are inherently good or bad? I, I don't think that they're inherently good or bad. I think there's, there's more good humans and and I would base or like somebody might be I don't think anybody is I don't think anybody is like a hundred percent good or zero percent bad to or zero percent good (laughs) sorry 
I don't think anybody is 100% good or like 0% good. In other words, bad. Uh, like I think, I mean, like most things, there's a gray area. Uh, I think it is a lot, I would associate it mostly with people's actions and behaviors. But man, it's a, I mean, it's a tough question. Uh, Dre, you might need to rescue me. I'm just like. <laughs> no, I, man, that's, I don't know if I would need to rework the question somewhere in my head, but I don't really have an answer for like the moral definition or that, but some of the other ideas. So for example, you're talking about when you go against the constitution and then you can be tortured, or if you're not a US citizen, you can be tortured. You can lose citizenship um, and possibly lose humanness. Your human trait. Um, so that is something that I think a lot of people subscribe to. And a lot of people subscribe to, I think a lot of people would admit that like things like Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay, torturing people who are war criminals or like not from our country is okay, is acceptable. I think a lot of people would admit that. And we do that as a country. So, and I don't hear a ton of public outcry. And I think a lot of people would also agree that you can lose some quality of humanness, but maybe less of them would say it out loud. Yeah. Or like, or even think it to themselves, but their behaviors and their actions and their peripheral beliefs would point to that. Um, for example, prisons and the death penalty. It's just like, <sighs> If you want to talk about something that's inhumane, right? Prisons. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk about something that, and even uh, shelters for dogs too. If you want to talk about something that kind of brings humanity down, like makes us not look so very good, it's prisons and like animal shelters and stuff like that. Like, and like even episodes. that word though, like inhumane, like there is something unhuman about it. And I feel like those words suggest that being human means that we are good. Yes, I agree. I agree that that is the bias. I don't agree that we are good. I think that we are either it does the question doesn't make sense or bad. Because if you tell a lie, you're a liar. You don't need a lie. Every word out of your mouth doesn't have to be a lie to be a liar. So to say like, oh, humans do good things and bad things, that kind of makes them bad. Because it's like, well... We, like, we do altruistic things and save lives and, like, create shelters for, and sanctuaries for animals, but then we also commit mass genocide on them and on each other. So it's like, hmm. how could we have genocide in our history, an endless war in our history, but be good? How is it? Like, those are irreconcilable to me. So either, yeah. to me, the question doesn't make sense or we're bad. Yeah, and I think just so Dre, the question making sense, not making sense. I think so to Lauren's point. I think she is she has made a an apt observation in that we tend to equate humanness with goodness. Like I think that's a super apt observation, and that I think that is like some a phenomenon that does exist. Uh, however. Like Dre, to your point, I think you're making also a lot of sense in that like that in and of itself is is false. Like you should not one should not equate humanness with goodness because humans are flawed. Right. So here's another way that I think about it. And yes, you're hundred percent right, is that when we think like you and you're right too, when we think about goodness we think about it being human. Anything that's gonna help humans feel good and proliferate is good. That's how in general, that's how we acted throughout history and that's how we act in general today. But the idea, talking about emergent qualities, the idea of goodness has evolved outside of ourselves. We gave birth to it, it seems, but it's evolved so far beyond us that it's an ideal and a concept in and of itself that we have not hit yet. We, when we talk about these things, we're striving for that goodness, but we're acting in human goodness. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is acting in the in bene, in beneficiary ways, or not beneficiary, in benefiting ways for humanity, and we're calling that good. But goodness, morally, philosophically, is actually a concept that is separate from that, in my mind. And that's where, if we're talking about that goodness, we are not that. Moral and, goodness. Correct. 
But if you just want to say, oh, like things that are going to help humans reproduce and live good lives, I mean, I still don't think we're that either because wars and genocide. But that's more of like in line with maybe. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, it's a super convoluted idea and question. I struggle with it myself. I, I also equate a lot of the argument to my um, upbringing in the church. And I think a lot about what we are taught biblically and that is that we are born sinners so we are born bad and that baptism in christ jesus christ uh then allows us to escape our humanness because we are inherently going to sin because of the adam and eve situation so that's like the that's like the story that we're taught and i think I mean, I think I agree that humans are inherently bad, like that the moral goodness or like the ideal morality that we would maybe want to achieve, like the ultimate equality, either doesn't exist or we're not there yet. And I don't I don't think that humans are. So this is where I would disagree with church um, <laughs> is that I don't think that humans are all inherently bad I also I just also don't think I, I don't think that humans are inherently bad or inherently good I think we each and every one of us have goodness and badness within us and we need to hopefully figure out how to manage the bad and strive towards like a positive good trajectory so i hear you and you're wrong because (laughs) uh, because you're not wrong in your argument you're wrong in saying that you refute the church because while the church says that people are born into like into sin yeah it is not that we are born inherently bad that everything is about us is bad Mm -hmm. it's that we are inherently human and therefore thereby cannot achieve perfection and mm. so in baptism, then you decide to refute your ways of sin and strive toward him, he whom was perfect, which is Christ in, I mean, in the church, right? So I think your, like your argument, I hear you, and you're just saying, you're echoing exactly what the church says, except for it's modeled, like, based off of a man. Yeah, and you are not coming to the conclusion that me and the church come to where it's like, if you have this badness in you, then you are bad. You're saying, oh, no, it's kind of both. Yeah. And for me, where I was, what I was saying with the question doesn't make sense is because are humans good or bad? Well, humans are selfish. Humans are inherently selfish. So it's like they're self-interested. And that's where you get these good and bad traits. It's like, how do we adjust appropriately in a society in these crazy huge groups that historically humans have no species well not not no species but humans have never been in how do we act that out without harming other humans Mm -hmm. and a lot of times most of the time i guess it's probably what we would call good but a lot of times it's not but it's Mm -hmm. always selfish it's always selfish yeah i think just to put a a little bit of a caveat too on the selfishness as far as like some a perspective from uh, many like evolutionary biologists is uh, this idea of because some people hear that and then they're like oh what about altruism or what about uh, yeah like martyrs as well uh, but there's also this concept in evolution and I'm just like stating it and I think that it's like where Dre is coming from as well, that it's kind of this also beyond just preservation of the individual, it's like preservation of and propagation of the your gene pool, mm-hmm. and your, your tribe or whatever else. And, and the conception is that by being altruist or, or a martyr, you can help your group. Right. And but, d- right. Anyways. So that's exactly, that's 100% where I'm coming from. Yeah. Cause I, like, I wasn't being a hypocrite or like contradicting myself. I talked about altruism earlier, but right. what, what makes it most likely, how do we know the likelihood of if someone's going to be altruistic or not? It's if it's their parent or if it's their kid. You're going to be most in, in altruistic to someone who's related to you because they see they're closest to your genetic makeup. That's still selfish decision, right? Like, you're still. Statistically, that's what's observed, is what you're saying. 
I'm saying that's like the evolutionary biological mm. um, argument or like, mm. yeah, tendency. It's like animals, including humans, you're most likely to sacrifice to make an unselfish decision for someone related to you, which they carry your genetic code. So they're really similar to you. So it's still pretty selfish. Yeah. And then on, if we want to, which <laughs> we can get off this in a second, but if we would, really, so if you're saying, oh, that's still unselfish. Well, at the end of the day, you're only doing that because you're trying to avoid like the guilt or the pain of losing that person. And it's going to bring you joy and value to save that person's life and sacrifice yourself. So mm-hmm. even then that would still be a self decision because you're doing what's going to make you feel the best. Wow. Yeah. There's, Bonkers. there is a lot of, there are a lot of nuances to, to humanness, right? We are a convoluted complex. Yeah. Species. And just to bring it back to the Dre's question about the dog and and the inability to communicate or the difficulty with which communication by the human language yeah, yeah, yeah involves no is just being demonstrated in our <laughs> conversation. Definitely. <laughs> Nothing more human than this conversation. <laughs> or even at the beginning when you first thought oh, that you're a Christian, um, Lauren, I thought that too. I was like, nothing more human than religion. Yeah. Right? That's true as well. Um. Yeah, I think, a, I think a lot about this conversation and c- leading up to this cast had thought a lot about this conversation in the knowledge that we live in a screwed up society, we live in a screwed up world. There is a, there's a lot of good also, and a lot of people are doing great things. Uh, I'm, all, I'm even striving to do some crazy things. Um, for good that are quite altruistic and I just was even questioning myself like is this a world that I would want to bring a kid into and like if it is a world that I think I would want to bring a kid into why like why my family is screwed up like our society is screwed up our world is screwed up our planet is suffering so that was it that was a my humanness thought is like, man, if I want to bring a human into this world, why? And like, just to have more of us, like, is human the goal? Is humanness mm. the goal? And like, that, that, those were some thoughts that I had coming into this cast was like, man, there's a lot of opportunity for growth. Is it, <laughs> is it selfish to think that I could fix it? You know, um, some food yeah. for thought. I think some food for thought. I think just to, I guess, get away a little bit from the selfishness and like the, the, the challenges that exist in our world. Uh, one benefit of humanness is art, poetry, philosophy, art. The, yeah, art and 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 the ability to enjoy a, a walk in the woods. Uh, our ability to teach I think yeah our ability to teach and and mentor those younger than us or older than us like yeah all of these also very human behaviors actions that may may be interpreted or may in fact be selfish they feel pretty darn good and like I think that that is that those sorts of experiences uh, that can only exist in, in, in the human ex- experience so far as we know. Um, poetry, maybe. I don't know about art. Yeah, poetry. I, I've seen some, some elephant paintings. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stunners. Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah. yeah. Way <laughs> For the sure. Next, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just those, those sorts of, uh, yeah, cu- yeah, just, I mean, communications of, of the of life and the challenges that be uh i think are quite worthwhile in my eyes yeah i agree as a fellow human being (laughs) um lauren wrapping up uh i do really like that question though i think it's a it's a good question to ask it's one that probably takes more pondering than most people would give it credit for maybe sounds a little bit silly maybe it sounds like of course is the answer but as you guys would probably guess my answer is definitely no and Laura was shaking her no. <laughs> and if you've listened to any of our other podcasts, you would know like I'm a transhumanist. 
transhumanism means going beyond humanism. So it's like, of course, I, humanism, humanism, humanness is not the goal. It's like we're trying to become something greater, like whatever our next species is, our next evolution and the one after that. Um, I think inhumane is actually a pretty inappropriate word because humans do a lot of really, really bad stuff. And then we just chuck it over to being animalistic. It's like, well, that was pretty human of you. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then going to the point of having kids, it's like I definitely lean towards it being immoral to have kids in this world because of so, like, so many things that go on and the suffering that they're going to be afflicted with. Um, that's not like a hard, but I'm, I just kind of lean that way. I'm kind of, it's definitely something when I think about having kids and when Emma and I talk about it, that's definitely a big issue. I'm like, do I want to raise a kid in this world? Is that a moral thing to bring this life into this world, knowing the type of things you're going to experience? Yeah. Are you kidding? Have a little couple podcast babies running around here, <laughs> like hyper intelligent. <laughs> yeah. And you know, they might yeah. be super smart and then they'll be. Riddle with mental illness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, hope, the hope is that they could find meaning and, and have a happy life. But For sure. Yeah. Well, um, common scientists, this was, man, a fun cast and a lightning cast, thought-provoking for myself. I hope it was for you guys as well. For sure. And uh, I would encourage you as common scientists to ask yourself this week or today or in this moment what you think it means to be human and how maybe you could be a better human so that selfishly if i want to have a kid one day (laughs) i don't know so that we can all feel good about uh continuing in our humanness and continuing in this world to create and find beauty and find joy